Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome in here on Blazers Game Day. Yes, the new season begins tonight for the Kamloops Blazers who are coming into the new campaign ranked 5th in the country. Of course, we will have that game for you right here on Radio NL with pregame starting at 6 o'clock. The Blazers, of course, are home at the Sandman Center taking on Spokane. And to help tee up this new season, I will have our sports guy and Blazers play-by-play announcer, Mr. John Keane, on the program at around 9.50. Around 9.35, I'll be speaking with Mark Lee, the senior economist for BC Center for Policy Alternatives, as he has been digging through the BC Utility Commission report on gas prices in the province, which was released, of course, late last month. And that, of course, specifically talked about prices in southern B.C. that were, uh, you know, a little bit higher than maybe the average gas prices around the country. And in about 10 minutes, I'll be talking about young people getting out to vote on October 21st. There is a campaign underway by the B.C. Federation of Students, and I'll have their chairperson on the show in about 10 minutes' time. But... To begin today's program, I am talking about a new report from the Business Council of British Columbia called the Prosperity Index. It's aimed at determining whether overall living standards in BC are improving over time and offering insights on, of course, how to improve them. And I am joined now by Ken Peacock, Chief Economist for the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks so much for coming on today. Very welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So this report found that, you know, when it comes to societal well-being, BC ranks fairly high against a group of peers, but the province's economic well-being and business environment leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, So the Business Council ranked BC in the middle of the pack at 11th overall in prosperity index out of 21 national and subnational jurisdictions. So can maybe just start by breaking down these 21 jurisdictions and sort of why these were chosen as comparables for BC? Sure, Jeff. The, um, yeah, so th- this was a, a long project. We've been working on it for about a year, and we actually had uh, external expertise, a person named Dr. Andrew Sharp, who, who constructed and built the index for us. But we, in that process, came to the conclusion that it's probably most helpful to compare ourselves to other affluent countries. And we also wanted to keep it a manageable number. You know, a list of 50 or 100 probably would be a bit overwhelming. So we sort of settled on this number around 20, 21 jurisdictions. And as you noted there are some national ones and subnational ones so the national ones are Canada and the United States obviously would be a natural one but we also included Australia New Zealand uh, Japan the United Kingdom France and Germany and then the subnational jurisdictions uh, a na- natural comparators are obviously the other nine provinces so they're in there and then we thought in with respect to the United States we picked the, the more affluent and prosperous uh, states and also the ones that happen to align and are kind of more in competition with us and that would be Washington State, Oregon and California. Uh, we chose not to include too many more states for the reason I already articulated that, that we didn't want to overwhelm people with too many comparisons, mm-hmm. but we wanted to get a sense of how we're doing vis-a-vis these other relatively prosperous, uh, well-advanced economies. So essentially just wanting to look at the ones that are performing, you know, maybe above average, and and that's how you kind of want to compare, you know, what's happening in B.C. You don't want to look at the ones that are are on the lower scale of this index, right? You want to kind of shoot for the moon, if you will. Sure. 
Sure, sure. And and ones that intuitively we knew sort of aligned with our right. quality of life, our living standards and, and wealth level. I mean, you, you, you could pick in any number of less well-off countries and, and we would we would show favorably compared to them. But that wasn't the objective of this exercise. So when we're looking at comparing BC specifically, I guess, to, to some of these other places, I guess, what, what, what sort of factors were you looking in to determine, um, you know, just talking about prosperity, I guess, first and foremost, when you're looking at, um, you know, just how well we're doing in terms of uh, in well-being, if you will, I guess that's a pretty overall overarching statement, well-being, what exactly does that mean? And, and sort of how are you able to determine where BC ranks among, among its peers? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, and you sort of touched upon it in your opening comments. Um, we decided we, it was important to take a holistic uh, perspective, so it's not just, is BC a competitive place to do business? Is is the business climate good here? We, we wanted to go much broader than that. So, uh, as you noted, we have three domains. We call them domains or buckets or three groupings of, of different indicators, and there's four indicators in each of those domains, and we did do the business environment, so whether BC is an attractive place to invest, is it good for business? Um, uh, but we also decided to look at economic well-being, and that's more at the individual level, how individuals are faring, mm-hmm. um, and there's data on that. And again, there's four indicators in that domain. And then we also said we need to be sensitive and aware of uh, how society overall is doing, so societal well-being and, and indicators uh, again, four indicators in that group, and things like life expectancy and income inequality enter into that to get a sense of how BC does uh, compared to other jurisdictions on this overall societal well-being uh, measure or metric. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, uh, BC, like I had mentioned, came in at 11th out of these 21 um, jurisdictions. So from a business council perspective, I mean, what were you hoping to see? Were you hoping to see BC rank much higher than that? I mean, it's obviously right in the middle. Is that sort of what you guys were expecting, anticipating, or where, where did were you surprised by the data that you collected at all? Sure, overall, not not a lot of surprises. A little bit of surprise in some of the the, the sub indicators, which we can get into in a moment. But the eleventh ranking, it, it, it's a little on the low side in terms of surprise. But but we didn't expect BC to come out on top because there's some other very prosperous and well-off jurisdictions. Uh, but from our perspective. There's definitely room for improvement. We're, we're right in the middle of the pack. We're 11th. And when you think about the resources and uh, the location of British Columbia and the skilled workforce and all these attributes and assets that we have here, there's definitely room for improvement. And so our hope is to uh, use this index to try and look at areas where BC is weaker compared to other jurisdictions, examine some of the other jurisdictions that are doing better, what they're doing to uh, achieve those results and over time maybe uh, see BC move up the ranking because, like I said, it's a very, very middling performance, clearly, right right dead center in the middle. So on the overall measure, not so good. And as I said, room for improvement. Uh, and I guess I'll start with where we did do well, and that's in the societal well-being um, sub-index. And there we rank 7th out of 21, and that's a pretty good performance. And, and what we look at there is, as I mentioned, life expectancy, poverty rate, income inequality, and some environmental uh, indicators. And so when you take all those, wrap them up, and compare BC to the other 20 jurisdictions, we, we do quite well in societal well-being. Uh, one of uh, here, I, I'm joined by uh, Ken Peacock, chief economist for the Business Council of BC. Uh, one of the things that did surprise me here was, uh, despite having the fourth highest education ranking in this index, 
uh, BC's business environment ranked 15th. I guess, how can that be? Like, it seems a little bit crazy to see that big of a gap in education and then the opportunities that are available after receiving that education. I guess, what, what did you guys determine to see that gap? What What is the reasoning behind that? Or, or could you even quantify that and, and yeah, why yeah, that is? There, there is, and it seems a little strange because you're right. So you're speaking about the, the business environment domain. Mm -hmm. And again, as I've said, we've got four indicators or in that business environment domain. And one of them, as you noted, is education, which we do perform very well on fourth of 21 because we do have a well-educated workforce here. And we got a good post-secondary system. So we do well there. But the other three indicators is where we fall short on. And, and the um, one that's particularly problematic for us is labor productivity. So if you look at how efficient we are in um, output per hour worked, um, how efficient we use our, our, our resources and our machinery and equipment and and whatnot. That's called labor productivity. And we com when we compare ourselves to the other jurisdictions, we come in 14th. And the other thing to note on that labor productivity indicator is there's a big spread between the jurisdictions. So California, for example, is almost twice as productive um, on an economy-wide measure as the, the BC economy is. So the California economy, highly productive. Same with Washington State. And so you get this big spread on that indicator. Same with um, we looked at non-residential investment uh, relative to the size of the economy across these jurisdictions. Again, BC 11th out of 18, not particularly good, but big divergence in the numbers. Um, same story with innovation, which is research and development spending relative to the size of the economy, 13th of 21. So those three, there's a big spread in the numbers, and BC ranks relatively low. Then when you get down to the education one, BC ranks high, but all the our jurisdictions are clustered together. So we don't get much of a big lift when the index is calculated from that education thing, even though we do rank relatively high. That gets swamped by the poor performance in the other three uh, indicators in that domain. So what, I guess, does BC have to do to improve this prosperity index moving forward? What do we have to do to be a better economy? What do we have to do to just improve, I guess, the overall well-being of people here in BC? Is it a matter of diversifying our economy here? To, like you had mentioned, some of these other um, uh, jurisdictions that are ranking higher than us, and there seems to be a lot more maybe some tech-based industries that are involved in seeing some of those rising up the ranks, I guess. Like, what is it that you were seeing that influences the, the countries that are ranked higher, and, and what does BC do you think have to do in order to sort of move up this prosperity index ranking? Yeah, that was a great question. The um, the challenge here is many of these things are, are slow moving and take time to change. Uh, there are a number of things we can do, but the other thing to keep in mind just before I get to the answer is other jurisdictions are also doing things to try and advance their prosperity levels as well. So sure. everybody's kind of moving at the same time. So moving up these ranking uh, up the ranking will be will be difficult. Uh, we fully expect that. But things that need to be done um, just because that our showing was relatively weak in the business environment domain. Um, looking at labor productivity, for example is something government should should be focused on and what we can do to improve labor productivity. Um, investing in infrastructure is, is an obvious candidate. And if we look at the lower mainland here, the congestion is is getting almost unmanageable and moving people around uh, it, it, when, they're, when they're sitting in traffic, that is highly unproductive. So we need to uh, in, invest in that. 
Um, we well, I was going to say education because that's something economists always talk about. But we actually do perform relatively well in education. Um, tweaking the. Tr- tax system to make it uh, more attractive to invest here in the province, invest in new machinery and equipment. Um, and I, I hate to say it because it's a contentious issue, but, you know, the, the HST um, was much, much better in terms of incentives for investing because of the the pass-through. I don't want to get into the details here anyway, but it was better. It was much better for attracting business yeah. and business investment and encouraging business investment. Um, and then the whole regulatory environment, it, it's very onerous here in BC, very difficult to get any project advanced on the land base here in the province. So, and I, again, these are thorny issues. I don't expect any simple answers, but, you know, stream, streamlining the regulatory approval process, that helps productivity. And then just kind of getting everybody on board, you know, kind of getting up in the morning and what can we do to be more efficient, more effective, and really encouraging businesses to grow? Um, we have a lot of small businesses in the province, and that's great. They're, they're wonderful. But at the end of the day, it's the larger entities that export, the larger entities and the larger businesses. They're more efficient. They generally tend, they tend to pay higher wages um, and overall are much more productive. So, you know, it's a, it's a mix of policies. There's no one single thing, but it's an area that government should be focusing on um, and encouraging investment. And then the innovation piece there is scope to uh, encourage companies to become more innovative and spend money on research and development. Um, so those are, those are a few things for you. Yeah. Well, a lot to unpack there. It's definitely a pretty interesting report. So I appreciate you coming on and trying to, uh, you know, explain a little bit of what you guys are looking at here. And, um, and yeah, de- definitely appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Ken. You're very welcome. Thanks, Joe. Awesome. That was Ken Peacock, Chief Economist for the Business Council of BC, talking about their new report called the Prosperity Index. Coming up, we have 30 days left in the federal election, and there's a chance that people under the age of 35 could make up the largest group of voters. I'll be talking more about that after this. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Good morning and welcome back here on Radio NL and thanks as always for tuning in. There's been a lot of election news here this week. I'm not going again to get into all of that as I think most of you are well aware of the storylines that are happening. But how will it impact the way that you vote? Will these scandals affect you at all? And are you more worried about policy or are you more worried about the individual characters of those who are running? Well, no matter how you choose to cast your ballot, the most important thing, of course is that you actually go ahead and do so. And there is one campaign that's out there now encouraging post-secondary students here in BC to make sure they do just that. And I'm joined on the phone now by Tanisha Clausen, chairperson for BC Federation of Students. Tanisha, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's just start out by talking about the way that students can influence an election. I mean, we'll talk specifically about BC here. I mean, there are over 170,000 students here in the province. I guess, what, what exactly does that represent to you? I mean, as, a, as a, someone who is trying to encourage these people to get out and cast a vote on October 21. Obviously, a lot of people that can potentially get out and really make an impact on the election. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a large number of students and young people just in BC, and and we know about this province specifically that, um, for example, in the 2017 provincial election, there's almost 60% of people age 18 to 24 that voted, um, and they actually turned out in higher numbers than 25 to 44 year olds. So especially in BC, the young people here are very engaged politically, um, and I think we're going to see that. Uh, when the the voter turnout numbers come out uh, following the election. 
Yeah, and I was kind of going through some of the data that you had sent me uh, late yesterday, and um, you know, what kind of you, you talked about some of the trends that you are seeing among student voters that they are coming out in more and more numbers. And I was thinking earlier, I remember the big push in 2011, the, the 2011 federal election from Rick Mercer to kind of go from campus to campus to get people out and vote. But then I looked at your data, and it shows you know those numbers among student voters have continued to come out in more and more numbers each, uh, at least in terms of federal elections. And you were talking provincially as well. I mean. Were you surprised to see that? I mean, I was a little bit surprised because I thought, um, you know, I thought numbers might have dropped a little bit amongst those post-secondary voters, but apparently that's not the case. Yeah, it, it seems like young people are just continually feeling more and more empowered and are acting with a lot more agency politically. So, yeah, we saw a huge amount of youth voter turnout increase um, in every province between the 2011 and 2015 federal elections. Um, the highest being in New Brunswick with a 67% turnout, but the second highest was actually here in BC with a 66% turnout for young people getting out and voting. And I think it's just the, the fact that young people feel like they have more agency. There's, there's more groups out there telling young people or helping young people feel empowered rather than saying, oh, no, you don't vote. We're really trying to change that narrative, and it seems like that's reflecting um, in, the, in the numbers. And the age group among voters is actually seeming to get quite a bit younger. Um, I think one of the stats that I saw was that for the first time um, that 2019 here, millennials could form the largest single voting block. I mean, uh, obviously, th that means that the numbers are getting younger and younger all the time. Um, I guess just what are you doing to encourage these people to get out? And, and do you think that that will be the case, that millennials are going to be uh, you know, a massive influence here in 2019? Yeah, so it's the first time in 40 years that uh, people under 35 will be the largest voting block. So we're going to make up 37% of the electorate, which, which is a huge number. And I think this combined with, with all the statistics of how young voters uh, increasing, like the turnout has been increasing, it's really going to influence this election and we're really going to be the ones that that make this election what it is. And I think that's only going to get more and more prevalent as, as the weeks go on. And I think it's just really about reminding young people of that, how much power we actually have um, and trying to combat that negative narrative that is so, so prevalent. Um, and I think the more we do that, the more and more we're going to see these, these young folks get out and vote um, for issues that, that they care mm -hmm. about. And uh, well, not a lot of time here left, Tanisha, but I guess what happens to people who get out and vote for the first time? Your data shows that they are more likely to vote again in the future if they vote once. So what are you doing to make sure that people do get out, even if they haven't been out before, to get out for the first time and then hopefully make that a trend in the future? Yeah, we're really trying to focus on getting young people to pledge to vote um, and really stress how much power and agency that we have in this election. So we're trying to turn young people to um, our pledge to vote, which people can find online at ourtimeisnow.ca. So on there we have a pledge to vote um, and we're able to give uh, young voters, especially new voters, information on polling, uh, where to vote, when to vote. Um, and, and it also has a link to our youth voter research document for, for people that are into statistics so that they can really see the numbers that that back up back up this this work that we're doing awesome well uh, that wraps up our time here tanisha but thanks so much for joining me on the show this morning i really appreciate it yeah thank you so much awesome that was tanisha Kloshin, chairperson for the bc federation of students yeah check out their website it definitely uh, has some good information on there and makes it pretty simple to to read some policy and things along those lines to help you make your decision come october 21 coming up it's been almost three weeks since the bc utilities commission released the results of its inquiry into gas prices in the province and i'll be talking with the center for policy alternatives after this your opinion call or text 
250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back into the Friday, September 20th edition of the Jeff Andreas Show. The BC Utilities Commission presented its report into gas prices in BC at the end of last month. The report claimed there was no evidence of collusion among gas retailers, but says there are also many unexplained differences in wholesale price margins in southern BC. I'm joined now by a senior economist with the Center for Policy Alternatives, Mark Lee, who has been spending some time digging through this report. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, good morning. So this final BCUC report on BC gas prices largely supports your analysis, I guess, from what you had presented in June last year. Uh, as someone kind of new to the province, I guess, can you sort of explain to me just sort of what you were presenting last year and sort of how this new utilities report compares? Yeah, I think, um, you know, myself and there, a couple other people were real, really interested in what were the causes of the extremely high prices that we saw, um, you know, through early 2018. And then again, um, you know, around you know, March and April of this year, uh, when things really spiked, um, we were able to use data on gas prices, which, you know, breaks down the, the pump price basically into four components. So there's the, pri- the cost of, of crude oil. Uh, there's the what they call the margin going to the refineries. So this is basically the the difference between the what they sell it to uh, at, at a wholesale level and what they pay for crude. Uh, there's the retail margin, which is the the portion that goes to the gas station operators, uh, and then there are taxes paid to various levels uh, of government. It gets a little bit complicated because uh, some of the big companies have operations spanning from you know oil sands operations and refineries and uh, service stations. So it's that's not really distinct. But the the key point was that the, the there was a huge increase in the margin going to refineries, or that is that wholesale prices, in other words, uh, were a lot higher than uh, you know the, our own history than compared to other Canadian cities, or even compared to uh, our neighbor Seattle. Uh, and you know we raised that as a major concern that that we thought there was gouging happening on the part of of oil companies. So the I think the BC government was sympathetic to that uh, view. They set the BC Utilities Commission out to investigate and the, the BCUC then over the course of the summer you know, brought in uh, oil companies, uh, put them on the stand, interviewed a whole bunch of experts, commissioned their own analysis. And their final report basically says, okay, after we look at all of the factors that the companies themselves have put forward, there's still um, in Vancouver 13 cents a liter of gas prices that is unexplained, which I would call gouging. Uh, it's somewhat less in Kamloops. It's only um, you know six to eight cents uh, per liter there, uh, but that's still unexplained relative to what the factors would be, or basically what they would be in a functioning competitive market. Yeah, and when when the report came out and it started talking about unexplained differences, I mean, it, that kind of baffled me a little bit because I thought that was kind of the whole point of this whole inquiry was to explain the differences. Um, I mean, in, in your analysis of the inquiry, I guess, have you come up with any explanation as to what that 13-cent difference in Vancouver and, as you had mentioned, about 7-cent here in Kamloops? I mean, can you explain it all? I mean, how that difference was able to be achieved? Well, I think it's basically you have a small number of companies. So here in Vancouver, there's only four major companies that uh, produce like 90% of the gasoline that that's consumed. Uh, in Kamloops, you also have the, the Husky refinery. So you have one extra company uh, in, involved in, in the process. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's the ability of those companies to exercise market power. So if you're a profit seeking company, which, you know, almost them all are, um, and you have the opportunity to increase your profits by raising prices, uh, then you will, uh, in a, in a competitive marketplace that doesn't happen because the, the checks and balances of other companies that you're competing against, uh, keep a lid on that type of behavior. Um, but in, you know, the case of monopolies or a small number of comp- companies, which they call an oligopoly, uh, which, which is what the BCUC identified this market as, uh, those companies are able to uh, raise prices. And I think oftentimes they use uh, excuses like, um, you know, there's refinery downtime here, or there is an explosion on a pipeline somewhere else, or you know, even more recently, the Saudi drone attacks um, are being used to instantaneously raise prices for consumers, even though none of the gasoline or oil that we consume uh, in British Columbia comes any, from anywhere close to Saudi Arabia. Okay, so so when we're talking about those unexplained differences, you really do think it's just a matter of of uh, companies just overinflating their prices. I mean, one one thing that we had kind of talked about in our newsroom here um, about potential reasons for that was um, one was I mean the government policy wasn't really looked into as part of this inquiry, um, and and there was some belief that potentially, I don't know if this is actually true or not, that um, the quality of gas is actually higher in BC than it would have to be in other provinces or in the United States. I mean, is there any truth to any of that? I mean, could those potential differences be explained in some other way besides gouging? Is there is there at least potential for other factors at play here? Sure. Well, I mean, so we have to distinguish the, the, the 13 cents that's unexplained, and that's what I, I would argue is, is the portion that's gouging. But the gas prices in B.C. are actually, you know, much higher that compared to other jurisdictions. So there's another portion of the, the, that gap in prices that can actually be explained. And the, and the BCC did look at all of the explanations that uh, companies uh, put forward. So, you know, every, everything from credit card fees um, and, and all the way uh, up to, and in fact, the, the, they were told not to look at uh, taxes and uh, regulations, uh, but because the companies had put those forward as explanations, uh, the BC basically over- had to overstep its mandate to look at that. So in the case of the uh, taxes, we know that, you know, taxes have been going up on gasoline, but, you know, oh, even over the past, like, three or four years, it's only about five cents uh, per liter. So that, you know, it's it's something, but it's it, that part is explained. Another part is this uh, low-carbon fuel standard that was brought in, um, you know, about 10 years ago and has been getting more stringent over time. Uh, and they figured that uh, at most, and there's a range of estimates here, but at most it was about four cents per liter could be attributed to that. So it is it is a factor in the overall price difference. But even after considering all those different layers of things that could be explained, you have this unexplained gap of, of 13 cents per liter in Vancouver and, you know, six cents per liter in, in Kamloops. Um, that is unexplained explained and that the only logical explanation for that is that companies are doing it because they can. Uh, here with senior economist Mark Lee. So, um, I mean, when you're talking about the situation in regards to demand as well, I mean, is there has there been any change in in the course of the last decade? I mean, or has things remained fairly fairly stable here in BC compared to elsewhere? I mean, is, is there a larger demand here that that's why they're able to kind of go about doing this, or is this simply just a matter of you know people are going to pay and and, and you know they're just increasing their prices accordingly? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the overall demand for gasoline in BC or Vancouver uh, is fairly stable. We have had some modest uh, population increase overall, but it tends to be offset by uh, shifting away, um, mostly here in Vancouver, from from like driving to things like transit, uh, and also much more fuel efficient uh, vehicles that are on the road, so hybrids and all electric vehicles. Um, so the the overall amount of consumption of gasoline uh, is fairly stable, uh, and you know those small number of companies have been able to supply that demand, you know, at prices consistent with other jurisdictions, essentially up to 2015. And in recent years, we've seen this uh, this divergence uh, away from that. Um, so you know that to me suggests that. Uh, you know, we do need to look at some some, some form of regulation uh, for this market. It shouldn't be that difficult for a small number of suppliers to meet fairly stable demand, still earn a reasonable profit, but doing so without gouging consumers. So you want to see potentially more government action in terms of regulating what uh, gas companies are allowed to charge customers? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the BCUC looks at it, and they, they argue that the, on the retail side of things, there is a fair amount of competition, so they're not as concerned uh, about that. There's still a, a gap. It's the, the retail margins are still higher than, than elsewhere, uh, but they tend to focus more of their analysis on, at the wholesale level, so the, the price coming out of refineries. So I think there's a, definitely a, a case to be made for that. Um, we already regulate the price of electricity. We regulate the price of natural gas. Uh, and with gasoline, the market is in such a mess. Um, not sure how things are in Kamloops, but the you know, really wide swings in prices and then just, you know, those those peak prices that, that we see. Uh, and again, whenever there's uh, any excuse, um, you know, we, we see prices go up. But, you know, when crude oil prices fall, well, for other reasons, it, you know, it takes months before we start to see any movement uh, at the pumps here. So I, I think you know, for the sake of consumers, uh, we would be better off with some form of price regulation, which they have in, in the Atlantic provinces. There's four provinces that, that do set a maximum price of, of gasoline already. So I think we should be taking a page uh, from what they do. And it, it, this is money in people's pockets. I mean, the BCUC found that uh, it was about half a billion dollars per year uh, in excess profits going out of the pockets of drivers into the uh, pockets of oil companies. So it's no small amount of money when you look at it in total. Yeah, obviously that money could uh, potentially be spent elsewhere to help improve the BC economy. Um, I guess, is there any um, projections that you have made moving forward? I know like we're looking in, in BC, there's that uh, um, rebate program that was in place for people to buy like electric cars and things along those lines. I mean, as we see more of a shift uh, towards that sort of driving behaviors and, and less of a reliance on gasoline, I guess, is there any projection that you have in terms of, um, you know, what the demand might be in the near future or, or if it's going to shift dramatically and what the potential impact would be on prices at all moving forward because obviously uh, what this was looking at was more historical but um, I mean yeah do, do you expect any changes here in the in the near or distant future yeah I, th- I think we're, we're, we're in this sort of you know awkward transition phase so um, you know for you know climate change reasons we want to shift away from uh, fossil fuels to power our, our vehicles. The government has already set targets for the amount of new vehicle sales that it would like to see uh, in the future. But even already, because prices have been so high, I think consumers are already um, moving uh, with their feet. Uh, and also, in part, because of the incentives that are being offered federally and provincially for buying things like all-electric 
types of vehicles. So I think the, the upshot of that is that you know over over the next you know ten to twenty years you're going to see a decrease in the in the total demand uh, for gasoline. So it, it it's a difficult policy decision because you know one way of trying to alleviate high prices now is to build more capacity to handle more gasoline. But we know we're going to need a lot less capacity in the future. So we don't want to be spending a lot of money right now uh, investing in infrastructure uh, that's not going to be needed ten years down the road. Uh, so yeah, I think you know public policy should definitely be pushing uh, more strongly to get more uh, electric vehicles uh, on the road. I think it's about 15% of new vehicle sales over the last uh, half of a year. Uh, so that's significant, but still a ways to go. Well, Mark, that uh, pretty much wraps up our time here, but I really appreciate you doing this and coming on the show. There's some really good stuff there, and uh, I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, coming up after the break tonight marks the season opener for your Kamloops Blazers, and we'll help tee up that season with John Keane after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back into the uh, Friday, September 20th edition of the Jeff Andreas Show. I'm joined now by Radio NL Sports Guy, Mr. John Keane. John, how you doing? Hey, yeah, boy, uh, early start to the day today because we got a, a big game tonight, home opener, and uh, finally the season's here. There's been a lot of anticipation. Yeah, 7 o'clock tonight, right, Puck Drop? Yeah, we're going to hit the airwaves actually a little bit earlier. We got an extended pregame show. Uh, Colton Davies and myself will we'll handle things from 6 to 7 o'clock. Uh, there'll be the player introductions. We'll carry that all live and then, yeah, we're ready to go here. Perfect. So 7 o'clock tonight at home at the Sandman Center taking on the Spokane Chiefs. Now, uh, earlier this week, the CHL Top 10 rankings came out. The Kamloops Blazers, I believe, came in at number Five. Were you surprised with that one? Well, yeah, I was. I was big time surprised because uh, I guess basing off the preseason record, which as we know was a perfect 7-0, and but you know, for me I, I, w I think the team as well would, would like to kind of fly under the radar here a little bit because a lot of the talk, Jeff, you know, in the offseason has been the Vancouver Giants are poised for a long run. The Kelowna Rockets will be hosting the, or hoist, or hosting the Memorial Cup here, so, uh, you know, I think the Blazers weren't getting a lot of attention because of that and all of a sudden, you know, they have the preseason, they did and you know they they have the success and and uh, the CHL top ten has them uh, as you mentioned in number five. I mean, do you think that that's a bad thing? I mean, do you think that um, you know being ranked so high going into the season to start the season that uh, you know it's going to put a little more pressure not so much on them themselves but just on other teams when they come here and when they take on Kamloops to actually come up with their A game. Uh, great question and that's kind of I guess wait and see this weekend because you know not only is it tonight but the Blazers will hit the road and be in Seattle for tomorrow night's game uh, and then Sunday in Portland so uh, it's it's a busy weekend and all of a sudden you know coaches can be like hey let's let's use the Blazers as a measuring stick yeah. here and, and uh, it is really early for this stuff. It's funny those see CHL top 10 rankings don't get a lot of attention unless your team's in them. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, it becomes a thing here. So very premature. I know they needed to get it out. It's sponsored by Kia, so I think they want to get the sponsorship started more right. than anything here. That's probably what it is behind the scenes. Uh, I guess when you look at that, though, I mean, talking about a 7-0 and preseason record, I guess, do you think that maybe a little too much stock is being put into what happened during preseason games? Because I know when we look at preseason in any other league, and, and this the league is no different, you know, the, the results themselves really don't matter. It's about individual performances because you're trying to make the team, you're trying to show your stuff. Uh, do you think too much stock is necessarily being put into the, the fact that they haven't lost? 
Short answer is yes, but but a long answer would be wait and see because back in 2012, the Blazers had a perfect preseason that year as well, five and zero, and that launch padded them into the regular season where they went 16-0-0 and one to start the year. That was a franchise record for best start in the uh, in in franchise history and uh, nearly best start in WHL history. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you want to look at you know they always say the best way to predict the future is to study the past. So that would be the example of a a strong regular season, or strong preseason, I should say, then turning that over into a strong regular season. So, uh, yeah, I think there is a lot, though, put on the preseason, maybe too much than, you know, you should, but uh, it's better to win the games than lose the games, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely want to take that momentum from the preseason into the regular season. It'd be a pretty big shame to go 7-0 and and then lose game <laughs> one, yeah. although I guess that's not unheard of. Um, talk a little bit about the, the schedule here. So, as you mentioned, three games in three days to start, and obviously going from from Kamloops right down to Seattle, uh, that's a that's a pretty big travel day for them and uh, travel weekend, I should say too. Yeah, and, and about two or three times a year, Jeff, what the team will do will play that night and then immediately leave right after the game, uh, home game, and travel through the night to get to a destination city. And it just so happens that one of those usual two or three nights of the season is on opening weekend here. So uh, the Blazers will be going into Seattle, where traditionally, if the team does travel through the night. Uh, the results just haven't been there. It's It's been difficult for this team to, to do that. It's difficult for any WHL team to do that. So they'll go into Seattle. It'll be their home opener. So you know kind of the hornet's nest they'll be coming into. That place can get going pretty good. Uh, and then after that game, they'll head right down to Portland. Uh, it won't be Portland's home opener as they play Saturday night, but uh, another tough place to go into the Moda Center, which can get really going as well uh, to, to end off the first weekend. Uh, here with Radio NL's sports guy, John Keenan. Of course, he's also the Blazers play-by-play man and you can hear him starting at 6 30 this evening here on radio and now with the blazers home opener uh set to air here on our airwaves um so i guess what are you expecting here tonight obviously a uh, big big game big home opener it looks like it p- could potentially be a sellout here at the sandman center uh, obviously it's going to be a pretty rocking atmosphere uh just excited to see things get underway yeah uh, you know you mentioned it there I, I think it's going to be very close to a sellout you know as you check the map on, on Ticketmaster, not a lot of those blue dots remain yeah. here this morning so uh if you haven't got your ticket yet uh, i would advise getting down to the box office which opened at nine to uh to get that sorted out uh, via credit card but yeah i'm expecting player intros a lot of energy in the building and you never know how these goes i, I i've been part of a home opener where there's been so much hype and then you get shut out and you feel like well that was a letdown and then there's like last year where you know there wasn't a lot of hype around the team Kelowna was in for the home opener uh, and zane franklin scored twice building was going and they and they and they really just ran rough shot over the rockets four one uh to set themselves up to start the season last year. So you never do know. You never do know in this age group. You, you can't really put much stock into into much, but uh, hopefully the guys play loose. Uh, they're not nervous to play in front of a big crowd, and they just let it go tonight. Um, and just, uh, I guess, following that up, I mean, what are, you, what are your expectations for the season as a whole? Obviously, it's uh, a bit difficult to predict. In junior, there is quite a bit of turnover sometimes from year to year, uh, but the team does have quite a, quite a good cast of uh, returning players here, so obviously um, you know, there, there's got to be some good expectations put on the shoulders of those guys who are coming back following what happened to end last year obviously a big run just to make the postseason and and uh, you know wanting to carry that over here in 2019 2020 what, what are you expecting in terms of uh, you know an overall season obviously being ranked fifth right now in the world in the country is uh, a lot of pressure to live up to so it's going to be difficult to maybe achieve that lofty status mm. but uh, I mean we're going into week one what what are you thinking well Jeff I think y- you want to put the bar probably at 
you know, I hate to say this this early, but 40 wins is is kind of the benchmark for a good season, uh, especially now when you've dropped the schedule. Uh, the last two years, the Blazers, uh, the WHL has gone from 72 to 68 games. Mm-hmm. So that's four less chances to win the 40 games. But I, I think 40 is a, is a good benchmark number for this team, kind of the over-under line uh, right now as we speak. And, and that's going to be put them in the mix with the Vancouver's, with the Kelowna's down the stretch here. I think people have kind of separated those three teams as the top team the division and then Victoria who you can never count out because just the way they seem to find a way and and Prince George in in sort of a second tier but boy uh it's early but I think if, you, if you're an odds maker you're probably putting it at about 40 wins perfect well John thanks so much for doing this really appreciate your time and looking forward to tonight's game yeah me too Jeff thanks for having me on today that was Radio NL Sportsman and your Blazers play-by-play announcer, Mr. John Keane. And, of course, you can hear him tonight with a pregame starting just after 6 o'clock here on Radio NL. Puck drop set for around 7. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. And if you missed something, of course, everything is posted at RadioNL.com slash podcast. You can check things out there. So thanks again to all my guests for joining me. And a big thank you to all for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Monday starting at 9.